we praise you for all that you've given us. That you, Lord, have indeed held nothing back. That you gave us your own Son. That we might know you. So, Lord, I pray this morning that you would strip away from us the thought that we can do it ourselves. Strip away from us the thought that we are enough in and of ourselves. Let us see your grace and your power. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for all that you've given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, that was weird. All right, if, if we were playing Family Feud... And Steve Harvey got up there, and he said, hey, tell me the judges from the Bible. I imagine, I find it hard to believe that Samson would not be the top judge, right? Like, this is, he's the homecoming king of the judges. He was probably a good football player, uh, had wonderful hair, but he, he's the judge that when we think of the book of Judges... Like, Samson's got to be, for many of us, the first one to come to mind. He's the human biblical Hulk. He's an X-Men. He's the long-haired bow with unmatchable strength, someone I relate to greatly. Um, no, I've, I've actually, I don't think I've ever related to Samson. Um, but he's, within the book of Judges, he's given more real estate than anyone else. Gideon comes close, but Samson gets the most attention. He's the judge that I think many of us remember the most from like childhood Sunday school because I, I think his stories are just the most uh, captivating, the mo certainly the most interesting and entertaining, uh, and aside from potentially Ehud, the funniest of all the judges. We get, the, within these comedic elements, we get glimpses of spiritual darkness, glimpses of, of power as Samson is again and again anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. He stands as the most individually capable of all the judges, and yet he was the least effective of all the judges, which is pretty interesting. And and while Judges moves on past Samson, he's actually the last in what we think of as the Judges cycle, where the people are captured, they're evil, they're captured by another nation, they cry out, and a judge comes and, and, and delivers victory, delivers the people from their captivity and their suffering, and then it starts all over again, only it goes down and down and down, and, and, and Samson's the last. So this is, by definition, the darkest part. In fact, here, when we get to chapter 13 of Judges, it opens up in the, in the very familiar way. The people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. But what we do not find is the people of Israel crying out to the Lord for help. There's no outcry. There's no appeal for help. The people of Israel are underneath the Philistine thumb for 40 years, and either they kind of like it, which I don't think is the case, or they don't realize they can even cry out to God for help. Either way, there's no outcry. 
There's no seeking of the Lord. Furthermore, there's no full deliverance at the end of Samson's life. In fact, Samson is the only judge without an army. He's just a strong guy by himself. It's like lemonade without the sweetener. It's only the bitterness. It's only the sourness of the judges. And it serves to set up the book of Samuel the, with the, the first two kings of Saul and David who did eventually deliver Israel from the Philistines and have victory over the Philistines at a time when the people were ready to cry out to God. But in the Samson narrative, there's this, what we see is spiritually blind people, a deeply flawed judge, and the spirit of the Lord who carries along the purposes of God. And we have the Lord who is gracious and sovereign. This is what I want us to see. The Lord who is gracious and sovereign works above, through, and in spite of human shortcomings for the good of his people. So here we have it. The people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord at the start of chapter 13. The Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines. And so we, we see within this, like just these overwhelming limitations and the first limitation we see is, is kind of the people versus the Philistines. The Philistines have come over. They have 40 years of reign under their belt up to this point. They're doing well. The Philistines are not under really that much threat at all. I think the Philistines are sleeping pretty good. But the people of God are evil. They are suffering. They are not, out, they are not crying out to God. A new enemy has come. We've read about the Philistines in chapter 10 that the people were worshiping their gods. We read that God was going to give them over to the hands of their enemies because of their continued apostasy towards him, their continued betrayal to God. And here they are. They're in need of a deliverer, but they don't ask for deliverance. There's no mention of them crying out. Like they, they don't even, they either don't know to cry out or they are just resigned to their existence. We've done evil, this is our lot, oh well. So we have the people versus the Philistines, and the people just can't handle the Philistines. And then we meet this couple, this certain man of Zorah, the tribe of Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. So here we have this couple, Manoah and his wife, who shall remain nameless. And they have no child. They have no ability to conceive. And then look at what happens in verse 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came to her husband and said, A man of God appeared to me. His appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, 
So then drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. God interrupts this couple and their grief over no children, and he, he offers a child. This is a familiar scene we find within the Bible. It recurs, and it's always with significance. We have Abraham and Sarah who are advanced in years and barren, and God gives them a son. He gives them Isaac. And then after this, we're going to have Hannah, who cannot conceive, and she cries out to the Lord, and he gives her Samuel. And then eventually we come to Mary, who is not barren, but a virgin. And by virtue of her virginity, there's a barrenness there. There's no reason to expect a child, and the Lord gives a child, and that child, of course, is Jesus. Manoah's wife comes to him with this word, hey, a guy came, pretty awesome, appeared like an angel, he's a man of God, and this is what he told me. He told me we're going to have a son, and he gave me some pretty specific instructions, because this child's a Nazarite. Now, I know a lot of you who are well-versed are like, oh, yes, a Nazarite, I know all about that. It was actually in my crossword puzzle this morning. But for those of you who don't know, the Nazarite was someone who would take a vow to the Lord, and it was usually a season of life. I'm going to be a Nazarite for this forcoming season, and during that season, I'm going to do these things like having no wine, touching no dead thing, and not cutting my hair. And the not cutting the hair was the sign to everyone as this hair grew out and grew out and grew out that this person has set, them, set themselves aside for the Lord. But Samson's Nazarite vow was not one that he took up, but one that the Lord gave to him from before birth. And it wasn't for a season of his life, but it was to be his entire life, that his entire life was to be set apart for the Lord in a visibly distinct way because his life was to serve the Lord. So the wife of Manoah recognizes that something special is going on here, recognizes that this isn't just any message, but that this is a heavenly message. God miraculously and powerfully gives life where Manoah and his wife had no hope for life, but had only known pain. He works in and through and in spite of their limitations to bring about the next deliverer and here's what's interesting about this with Samson. In previous cycles, God had always used someone who seemed to already be there. God approached Gideon, who was alive and well at the time. He had been born quite some time ago. God raised up Ehud. God raises up these judges or the people found Jephthah, who they knew. But here, God has to start over from scratch. Now, I've alluded to it. And you've probably picked up on it already, and we're going to see many more in Samson. These hints of Jesus, as I would call them. Like sometimes you're reading the Old Testament, and you're like, I smell Jesus. Like it's, it, I can't, sometimes you can't quite put your finger on it, but it just, the passage just kind of smells like Jesus. And there's just something there. And what do we do with that? Especially in the case of Samson, where he is so deeply flawed. And at some points, he's just repugnant. But... There's some similarities of Christ. Well, throughout the Old Testament, God ever, like from the fall 
through all the way through the Old Testament, we get these hints that there is a redeemer coming, that there is someone coming who's going to, as Genesis 3 puts it, crush the head of the serpent. And so what we have through the Old Testament is, if you will, it's, it's like a bunch of, it looks like a bunch of just broken pieces of colored tile. And, and you don't know what to do with them. And then the Gospels come and they put all those pieces into a mosaic and that's Jesus. And so we get these hints like, oh, born of someone who shouldn't be able to have a child. Oh, we're going to see next week in Samson, sold for silver, mocked at his death. We saw in Jephthah, this, another like just guy that we're not a big fan of by the end. He was rejected by everyone who he was, trying to, who he was delivering. And we see these hints over and over and over again, and we take them as hints that, that God's saying, like, look, here's a deliverer, and this deliverer just falls dramatically short of what you need. And it's all pointing to the one that we need, and that's Christ. And it doesn't make Samson more holy than he is. But it does tell us there's something here that points to our need. And our need is greater than anything Samson could ever give us. The final limitation we see is the couple versus the angel of the Lord. So Manoah's like, well, I'd really like to meet this guy. Uh, I, I want to find out who this very awesome guy is that's talking to my wife. The angel comes to the angel of the Lord comes to the wife again. She says, wait here. My husband insists on meeting you. She goes to Manoah. Behold, the man who came, he's here again. Manoah rose, went after him. And he goes, are you the guy that spoke to this woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said, now then, if your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? What is his mission? He has all these questions. And all the angel of the Lord says is, could you just listen to your wife and make sure she does what I tell her? And all the women of God said, Amen. there you go. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> but it's, what's interesting here is how each of them interact with the angel of the Lord. Because Manoah goes, hey, how about I detain you and make a meal for you? Let me prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord says to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering... Then offer it to the Lord, for Manoah had no idea who he was dealing with. Then, uh, and Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing that this is wonderful? So he takes the goat, he offers it, sacrifice goes up, the angel of the Lord appears no more, and Manoah hits the freakout button, we are going to die. But his wife, verse 23 says, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted the burnt offering, the grain offering from your hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And she bore a son, and they called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. The nameless wife here is clearly the person you want to talk to in this couple. I hope Samson gave her wonderful Mother's Day cards as he grew up, because she's clearly the brains behind the operation. 
Manoah seeks to offer a meal, but he will only accept a sacrifice. And there's something important for us here. Something for us to pay attention. The Lord does not want your stuff. The Lord isn't looking for you to give him some kind of grand thank you gift, to write him a card, to show him your hospitality. But what he wants is our worship. He wants our sacrifice. He wants us to lay ourselves down for his. And then at the end of this, they name him Samson. Now, a thing in Judges is the meaning of the names matter. And Samson is little son, pointing to the pagan leanings of their time, pointing to their theological confusion. But nothing here limited the Lord. Nothing here limited the Lord. Their theological confusion, their barrenness, none of it limited the Lord. And what we're also going to see as we move into who Samson is, is that even the natural inclinations do not limit the Lord. So verse 25, this quiet work starts happening. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir in, uh, stir in him in Mahanaden. Ooh, I wasn't ready for that. Between Zorah and Eshetol. And then Samson goes to Timnah and he finds this, this Philistine woman who he thinks is pretty attractive and he wants to marry and as chapter 13 ends, we're, we're given this bit of hope that the Spirit of the Lord is, is working and at work within Samson. And then we're like, but you want to marry a Philistine. And these things seem quite contrary. And indeed they are. But the Spirit doesn't go according to us. The Spirit is a surprising Spirit. The last thing you expect is for Samson to desire to marry a Philistine. God knows Samson's strength. He made him. He knit him together in his mother's womb. He also knows Samson's pride. And he knows the ways of the Philistines. And God uses all of these things between the inclinations of Samson, his imperfection, his pride, and his anger, and the Philistine cultures. And he uses all of these things to not only accomplish his will, but to serve up Samson as a picture of the people of the time and to bring in Samson like a wrecking ball. And then we get to verse 4. His father and mother did not know that this desire for the woman of Timnah to be his wife was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines, and at that time the Philistines ruled over Israel. So here we start getting, Samson's getting ready for the wedding. We start seeing the strength that the Lord has given him. We start seeing the nature of his Nazarite vow as he's coming. And a lion comes up. I know a lot of strong guys. I roomed with an all-American wrestler in college. And I just got to tell you, a lion would whoop him. And Samson gives that lion the young goat treatment. Tears it as one would tear a young goat, you know, because that's something we do. <laughs> but he doesn't tell his mother and his father. In fact, he doesn't tell anyone about it. And then later we also see a glimpse of, of Samson's character, of Samson being a I want it now kind of guy as he's coming and he sees the lion carcass and he sees bees and he goes, ah, bees mean honey. And he reaches, this is just disgusting reaches into the lion, pulls out honey and goes, 
that's pretty good, and then take some home for mom and dad. This is not the Mother's Day gift I had in mind. So Samson, Samson's dad goes and he finds this woman and they set up the wedding. And as soon as they see him, they bring Samson 30 friends. They assign him 30 friends for the wedding. And then Samson, appearing to not know what a riddle is, says he has a riddle for them. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And of course, nobody knows what this means. Samson thinks he has a way to an easy bet. We see his pride. We see his folly coming up. I know how I'm going to get 30 changes of clothes. I'm going to have each of these guys. I have, I have to find 30 for myself. They only have to find one each. I'm going to make a riddle that nobody on earth is going to know what it means. Because only one person saw me kill that lion, and only one person saw me reach into its carcass to pull out honey. And in fact, I'm the only one who would consider doing that, even though it's my Nazarite vow to not touch dead things. And so they work and they work. But no one's going to figure out this riddle that's not quite a riddle. And so, after the fourth day of trying to figure this out, they come to Samson's wife, and they say, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? You know what's interesting? As we read Samson, a lot of people think, well, Samson, what we see is Samson's strength. But, and we see that, obviously, his physical strength. But the women in the narrative of Samson seem to have their own strength, where Manoah's wife is the one who seems to be getting it done. And here Samson is about to be overpowered by his wife, and then next week we'll see him overpowered by Delilah. And so she presses him and presses him and presses him. You only hate me, you do not love me. Why won't you tell me this? She wept before him seven days as she is crying out on behalf of her and her family, knowing what these men will do. And so he tells her the answer, and she told them, and they said, what's sweeter than honey and what's stronger than a lion? And then Samson says, well, had you not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Young husbands. <laughs> Don't. Don't do it. But here's what's surprising. Here's what's surprising. Not that he called his wife a heifer, but then the Spirit of the Lord rushes on him. And he goes down because Samson's life purpose was to judge and punish the Philistines. And so here, in the midst of his natural inclinations, in the midst of his just buffoonery, the Lord rushes on him. He strikes down the 30 men of the, he goes down to the town, strikes down 30 men, takes their clothes and garments, and then gives that away to keep his word. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. Samson is furious. But even in his flaws, 
God is sovereign. God is in control. Orchestrating what will turn into the foundation of the downfall of the Philistines. A downfall that will come when God's people are ready. And As we think of Samson's natural inclinations, and we're going to get into this more as we start making our way through chapter 15, as we see Samson was really flawed, really flawed. But God is not limited by the things that limit you. Let me say that again. God is not limited by the things that limit you. We worry so much about our sin, our shortcomings, our addictions, the things that just plague us day and night, our insecurities. Oh, what God could do with me if I would only get this part of my life figured out. I just want to let you know, the Bible never says Be perfect so God can use you. The Bible never says, why don't you just get the garbage of your life together, put a nice little bow on it, and then finally, the almighty God of heaven can use you to accomplish something. You good-for-nothing little fill-in-the-blank. It never says that. Could God have done more with a hulk of a judge who is faithful and zealous in worship? Probably. But did God accomplish his will through Samson? Yes. I don't want to encourage you to be laissez-faire about your sin. I don't want you to think I'm saying it doesn't matter because it does. But I do want us to think more of the God of heaven than we do our own shortcomings. I want us to think more about what the gracious and sovereign creator of this universe can do than just how much I've messed up. Do you think your sin is the sin that ties God's hand behind his back? Rely on the righteousness that Christ secured for you, not on what you think you've secured for yourself. The Lord is gracious and sovereign, and works above, through, and in spite of our human shortcomings for the good of his people, and that includes our strengths and weaknesses, and includes Samson's strengths and weaknesses. So we get to chapter 15, and a little bit of a comedy unfolds in my mind. And it's really a back and forth of Samson and the Philistines. So Samson goes to visit his wife with a young goat, getting ready to have a meal, getting ready to reunite with his wife after he stormed off in anger. I'm going to go into my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him and said, look, uh, I thought you hated her, I thought you divorced her, so I just gave her to one of the 30 guys that was with you. But you can marry her younger sister if you'd like. Well, Samson, of course, is having none of this. Says, this time I'll be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. And Samson does the most logistically improbable and petty revenge. Like on a scale of zero to petty, he has changed his name to Tom, and he's singing free falling, and he captures 
300 foxes. This has always been, for no good reason at all, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Samson catches 300 foxes, ties them tail to tail, puts a torch on each pair of foxes and lets them go through the countryside, just completely decimating the orchards and the vineyards and the fields of the Philistines. I mean, how many times did that man have to get bit? Where did he keep 290 foxes while he caught the final 10? How fast is Samson? I mean, his strength is one thing, but the guy's agility puts Barry Sanders to shame. He caught 300 foxes. Well, as you can imagine, the Philistines did not enjoy this. So, they take up their threat to the, this young woman of Timnah, and they burn her and her father. Samson's not happy about this either. If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. See, Samson thinks this is just a little back and forth thing over a wedding that didn't go as planned. And so he strikes them hip and thigh with a great blow. And then he goes down and stays at the rock at Edom. And he feels like his work of deliverance is done. His work of judgment is done. It's interesting for me that Samson's not going out looking for a fight. But when his passions rise, he will not back down for one. So the Philistines are like, well, we need to do this back to Samson. So they camp against Judah, and they're like, hey, we need you guys to go capture him. 3,000 men of Judah go down. And they say, what, what are you doing to us? The Philistines are taking this out on us. Samson goes, you promise not to hit me? They go, we promise not to hit you. He goes, tie me up with whatever you got. Take me away to him. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him, and the Spirit of the Lord again rushes upon Samson, the ropes that were on his arms became as flax as caught fire, and the bonds melted off his hand. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and struck a thousand men. And Samson the poet strikes again with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. The jawbone of a donkey I have struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and the place became known as Ramath Lehi, or Hill of the Jawbone. Samson's strength is just incredible. It's hyperbolic. He uses a piece of bone to decimate an army of a thousand guys who probably had clubs and swords and shields and spears and all that stuff. And it's easy to forget when we're so wowed by Samson about his limitations. And I'm not talking about his poetry, his pet names for his wife, or, but I'm talking about his integrity. 
And I'm talking about even his physical limitation. Look at how 15 ends. He was very thirsty and he called upon the Lord. You have granted me great salvation by, by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? I don't think Samson's exaggerating here. And the reason I don't think he's exaggerating is the Lord's response. God split open the hollow place that is Lehi and water came out of it. And his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of the place is En-Hakor, that is Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. I don't think Samson is exaggerating at all when he says, I'm about to die of thirst. Samson, in all his strength, still runs out of gas. Remember, he reflects Israel. He's a picture of Israel. Samson himself is a picture of the people who desire the gods and customs of the Philistines. I want a Philistine wife. Now, next week we're going to see he goes to a prostitute and then gets a Philistine live-in girlfriend. He wants the Philistine way of life. His lustful longings and his animosity against the Philistines are a vivid but unflattering picture of the people of Israel. He wants to be one of them, and he absolutely detests them. And that's the people. They want to be like the nations, and they just can't do it. The people of God cannot peaceably walk with the world. And here it is, his strength was not enough to overcome his weakness. And his strength was not enough for what he needed. And it, quite frankly, was not enough for what Israel needed. The Philistines are oppressing him. And he's killed a little over a thousand Philistines by himself, which is impressive and not nearly enough. It doesn't deal with the problem of worship the people are having. It doesn't deal with the rest of the Philistines. But what we see here is that Samson, in all of his physical strength, his ultimate strength was in the Lord himself, the Spirit of the Lord graciously and continually falling on Samson in his greatest moments of peril. As he was about to die of thirst, even Samson knew he needed the Lord. Samson needed the Lord in his area of strength. His area of strength was physical strength. It's easy to see that he needed the Lord in integrity, but here he also needs the Lord because his physical strength is not enough for the task. His greatest possible attributes are not enough. And the people of Israel, they don't need more strength. Their answer isn't, well, if just we had a guy who could beat up everyone, if just we had a better army, if we only had this, if we only had this, then we could go there. And the message of Samson is, that's not enough. You need to walk with the gracious, sovereign God of heaven. That's what you need. Israel didn't need a bouncer. They didn't need more physical strength. They needed the Lord. And as we look at our present challenges, our future hope, our need is so much more than someone strong and mighty for us to watch kick butt and take names. Our need is for the Lord himself. We need, and God gives. Let's pray.
Father God, you are mighty. You are good. You are sovereign and gracious. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for all the times that we feel capable of just doing it on our own. When we try to rely on our strength, on our intelligence, Lord, what we, need, we don't need our strength and our intelligence. We need you. Lord, would you, would you give us you, Lord? Samson needed your spirit, and we need your spirit. We need the blood of Christ. We need your forgiveness. So Lord, would you hear us as we cry out to you and supply our need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.